I'm happy to say that this episode is being brought to you by Triumph Printing Company. Triumph is a Massachusetts-based screen printing company with 16 years of experience. Everything's hand-printed. They offer design as well as branding. I'm actually using them for a few upcoming projects, and I'm super excited to be working with Matt over at Triumph Printing Company. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at Triumph Printing Co. or email Matt direct at triumphprintingco at gmail.com. Banks weren't exactly giving out loans to kids that want to put out punk rock records. And I realized I'm not going anywhere. Usually it's a couple of irons in the fire. There's been times in the past where it's been a few too many and we've definitely paid the price for that. FBM, the bike company, was just like an office space with like a tiny warehouse and it caught on fire and burned down. I worked at companies where I was making more than enough and was living comfortably, but I wasn't happy because I didn't feel like the work was fulfilling. Hopefully this will squash any Chris Renza millionaire rumors. If I'd have known anything about business, I would have never started a bike company to begin with. I mean, there's a million other things that I could be putting my time and energy into to make a much better living. I'm trying to make an honest living out of doing something you love. It's like a terrible idea. We would rather fail than suck. That's truer every day. We will never suck. Kodak Projects presents Don't Stand In Line, a six-part docuseries about four unlikely entrepreneurs. Featuring Chris Wren of Bridge Nine Records, Sonny Singh of Hate56.com, Greg Walsh of Wolf Brigade Gym, and Steve Crandall of FBM Bike Company and Dropping Coffee. Available now for purchase or rent at CodecProjects.com. I think for for us and other friends of mine that were musicians, it was like luckily we had like a big hut of like what skateboarding and early punk rock was about because for some reason, you know, Ian McKay and you know suicidal tendencies we had these people popping out that were you know like the suicidal tendencies brother is the guy that's jim muir he's a part of the z you know this we had all these wherever the the, the roots would spread out there was always a kind of like a fun connection so for us it was easier to take the take the beach boy approach and say well we need our own soundtrack and we need our own vibe and then for me learning that i was able to take that and say well what is my canvas, which is my creative music within skateboarding. When I get into a, a corporate, more of a corporate session, let me take that person and just kind of put that emotional cape on that person and say, you keep that for yourself. And when you're around these business people, you figure out what they're trying to do and what they want to do. And that's all with skating and music. You know what I mean? So you're not wearing, I didn't want to wear out what was close to my heart. So I think that that's, Music and skateboarding have that common bond of like, if you can learn how to have something that you could throw up on the canvas and never worry about anybody kind of judging it unless you have a solid core family, like how skateboarders and punk rock do, or you know, artists or you know, comedians, they all have this inner world that they can throw against themselves first to get you know, the gratitude or the not form of gratitude to, you know, to better yourselves. And that's what, I think that's why skateboarding and music makes so much sense because you can reevaluate yourself on different levels within both lifestyles. You know what I mean? It's like, it's one can inspire the other, but the fact that you can make, you can make mental choices to be two different characters within music and skating, and they both work with inside each other. Welcome to episode 16 of the Kodak Projects podcast. This week, we're talking to legendary pro skater and musician, Chuck Treese. We talk all about how he got into punk and skateboarding, growing up in Wilmington, Delaware, turning pro, working with Stacy Peralta, his band McRad, being in Bad Brains, also being a studio musician for Billy Joel, and then playing in his current band, Bing Crosby, with his son. I think you're going to enjoy this one. My name is Chuck Treese. I'm a professional skateboarder and also a professional musician, touring, and artist. So how I, I like to just kind of start like back again, I don't know, as far as you want to go here, but um, how did you get into skateboarding? Um, skateboarding kind of um, started when I was like around age 11, when they first put out the, the original the skateboards with, uh, you know, the metal wheels and, you know, the real small decks. There's no grip tape. It was just pretty primitive. And uh, it, it caught on first with 
where I was living in Wilmington, Delaware, which is like a predominantly black neighborhood, just with some other mixed people, you know, floating around. But skateboarding hit first there and at age 11, and then it just kind of, it didn't stick with the inner city kids for some reason, I guess, because they, I mean, people go down to the beach and, you know, surf and fish and do whatever. But for some reason, it seems like skaters stuck with skateboarding because of the, the, the essence of surfing. And for the other inner city kids that were kind of picking up skateboarding like it was a hula hoop, it just kind of came in and went out. Like that that first phase of it being introduced to little kids, like here's metal wheels and it's a it's like a scooter, you know, with no scooter, you know what I mean, thing. Right, right. So by age 13, when I first got my, you know, my first skateboard, you know, moved out to the suburbs, you know, the mentality of the neighborhood was different because more of those people were just kind of like around beach life and what they chose to do. Not that other people in, in black neighborhoods don't do that. It's just that it was easier for me to just kind of assume this, this skateboarding thing is fun because of the neighborhood. It was safe to skate around. And and that's how we just started with a, you know, a friend of mine, Anthony Santoro, who um, he runs the Wilmington Skate Project up here. He, he lobbies for uh, you know skate parks around, but he's there working on a project now. But he's that Del the, El the early Delaware scene when I was like age 13, when I first went to the Burbs is when I kind of stepped on it and then, you know, skinned my knee and that the rest was history. You know what I mean? Just kind of get, you know, keeping it going. Right. Right. And then, so how long, at what point did you, were, were you first getting sponsored and, and, and how did that come about? Well, basically the, the reason why, um, like, I skated a lot with uh, this guy, Tom Graholski, you know, not as much as when I first started, you know, skating between like 13 and 15, but like right at the age of 15, 16, I started hanging out at a different, you know, skate park in Cherry Hill. And to me, the progression of skating from like when you're learning and you're going through different parks and then the, the parks change and they build a, a better park and the people who kind of fiend for it, you kind of want to learn in those environments. So, to me, being sponsored, you know, at age 18, there were there were two main reasons. My parents were like, we can't afford the skateboarding thing because, you know, the boards cost a lot of money and sneakers and pads. Yeah. And also, you have to find a way to get, you know, some kind of a, an endorsement or a sponsor so you can figure it out. So Tom and I sat down and figured out we would write each other's kind of like introduction letters to like Madrid uh, OJ wheels. Then there was, uh, I think it was Gullwing trucks and it was also van sneakers. If I didn't say van for, so we had four major sponsors that we sent these letters to and like, like probably was like 82, I think it was, we submitted those, you know, things and they got back to us, you know, Madrid skateboards, you know, and they started kind of flowing us light. And at that point, vans was at file chapter 11 and, you know, I didn't know that much about business. I just thought Vans wouldn't go on. They just had to follow chapter 11 to save themselves from the days of like Tony Alba, like the first wave. Right. It didn't get into the Olympics. So it just kind of fell, fell off from its first break of trying to be like an Olympian sport. Yeah. And then when it, when our era, the Cherry Hill era, which was like 15 to 16, when we, Jamie Godfrey wrote for Powell, a bunch of different guys, we had another second wave of, all of us getting better, hopefully getting sponsors, but Jamie and all these other guys are dealing with Stacy. But for some reason, when big business didn't, you know, huddle around that early Tony Hawk phase when he was like, I guess, 12 or something like that, Christian Asoy, they all, they all wrote for Pal at one point. When that didn't really snap off, skateboarding took another dive. And that's when I think Tom and I realized that we should stay skateboarding because if we have our sponsors, there's going to be places to skate, and, and people to meet because it's everyone just literally kind of fell out and it was rebuilding itself, you know, basically from age 18, you know, on. So it was just weird. Like, like we were sponsored, but it was almost out of a, a need of like, yo, you can't use a certain wood anymore because they got to use it for something else in society. So you guys got to figure out a whole nother game <laughs> just to survive. If you're into that, you know, that business and skateboarding is, you know, ha had some really hard hits at that time. So, to me, it was like that early age of 16 to 18 is when we were preparing ourselves to get sponsors. And then 18 is when our major sponsors came in. And then from that point on until now in my you know, 50s, 
I have I still deal with companies. I, I I like looking at it as you're dealing with companies and you want to help them promote their stuff. And if you can get them to do a signature board or some kind of collab board, whatever, that's the blessing of it. You know what I mean? As far as how I wanted to be sponsored, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. And it keeps it kind of low, a little bit more low pressure. It's not like well, yeah, and it's I mean, I and I had to skate contests you know, too, not to cut you off, but I had to no, skate contest too back in the day because it was more of a thing of that's how everyone did the meet and greet. You know, I mean, there were pressures, but then there were also great friendships made out of it. And then we all kind of figured ourselves in and out of, of that, like myself, Dave Duncan, Tommy Guerrero, there's all, all these people, even Tony Hawk. I mean, you know, watching him and his father create their dynasty, you know, through the NSA Skateboarding, you know, Association, which was doing all the contests and you know what I mean? And to where it is now to where those associations really don't matter unless you're top, top pro in street league or, you know what I mean? It's, we didn't have all that pressure. You know, all the guys that were pro around my time, they all admit that like the, the pressure now is it's almost like crazy. Cause there's so many banger clips up on, on Instagram every day. It's just, I don't see how anyone can really keep up. It's just crazy. Right. Right. And you mentioned the Olympics there. It's, it's, it's crazy how it, it took, What's this? Uh, Thirty something years later, my math yeah. is terrible, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I, yeah, go no, ahead. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was thinking every time that word comes up around skateboarding, I just think for some reason people don't. I think people underestimate the lifestyle of of skateboarding. Not that it's like this cult figure. It's just that for some reason, because it comes from surfing and it was a transportation, you know you know, device for, for guys who wanted to go surf. And then when, when the surf wasn't right, skating was their kind of freedom. So to me, if you want to be on a wave and you know, the waves are flat and you can't go out there and make waves, the skateboarding is kind of the next wave of that diehard situation. And it just seems like, not that it's ducking corporate America, but it just seems like every time that all these people try to rev it up and rev it up and rev it up, just skateboarding just pulls it back to like, I want to see all the kids putting up all the banging clips that you don't know. Or the you know the the nine year old kid that's skating just as good as a top pro you know what I mean, male or female right now or six or seven it's it's the, the some, yeah, yeah the stoke of skateboarding is so the lifestyle is so deep in so many different ways right now it's like it's the Olympics are just one small aspect of how important skateboarding is to the individual it's, that's yeah, what I think yeah. is missing yeah and it it's a weird one because it it it. I could, it's a double-edged sword for me to to look at that anytime I see any, any kind of like underground, like, you know, real court, like action sport. I, I don't know all the words that, that, <laughs> that there are to describe and don't feel right to me, but skateboarding or BMX or even, you know, snowboarding or surfing, like all those that like you can try to bottle it in this competition, but it's, it's so much, like you said, it's so much more than that. And in a way, I understand why it needs to grow to exist and have it and there kind of needs to be an industry so that, I mean, so many people I'm sure we both know that, that have their, their life is like wrapped up in the industry and yeah. you know, it, it sustain, sustains them. So without that, you can't have that. But at the same time, I do miss being able to roll down the street and see another kid on a skateboard that obviously gets it. You know, yeah, and, right. and just have that connection, you know. Yeah, right. yeah the magic moments. <laughs> right, right. I met so many people that way. But Tons. so it's yeah. So it's a weird thing. But but I guess that doesn't, you know, I mean, it's harder to find, but it's probably still there. Yeah, it's, it's it's completely there. It's just that for some reason when when they try to globalize skateboarding, it there's just seems like there's just other current that's happening and when you just i mean i try to keep up with people on instagram and oh, even try to understand <laughs> the stoke of where skateboarding is right now and it just seems like that it would be hard to bottle up all this open aggression right now into anything corporate i mean it's honed down the certain pros and that's great but when you look at skateboarding on instagram it's just you get un un unlimited education of like where what people are doing how they're incorporating street in the skate now and transition and obstacle skating it's just it's really getting creative, you know, right now. That's uh, that's what I feel. That's still that that raw stoke is still there for skateboarding. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, getting back to your early days, though, when you, I, I, I know you primarily, I guess, more as a vert skater. But I mean, I'm assuming you did 
you skate everything like every skateboarder for the most part but mm -hmm. was that so was that why you were were you picked up by powell at one point well I just worked with Stacy musically and then basically I got on a flow situation with um with Todd Hastings. He was a team manager when all that stuff was going down. So those guys just kept me, you know, kind of with product and and for some reasons when I would have a chance to be in like a, a Powell fanzine or you know, Bones Brigade fanzine, you know, Stacy was able to kind of in, interject me in, you know, because I other than me just being a sk skater, I've kind of I've been in contact with Stacy since I've been age 14. Like I wrote him after he had an um, interview in Skateboarder Magazine and he wrote me back and he told me the whole concept of the Bones Brigade and what he wanted to do and how he wanted to make it, you know, different than like a skate team. And he just, he had this whole thing planned out that he wrote out in, in a letter. I wish I would have kept a letter, but it was just, yeah. you know, like Stacy flowing me, I felt like I'd already had a connection with him just due to the ultimate respect of him being a great skater and a great person, like a lifestyle guy. So when I kept on, when skateboarding was crumbling and he realized I was in the music, he made it easy for me to say, Chuck, if you need gear also, because I know you're still skating, you know what I mean? Boom, you know, so I was able to kind of, when I wanted a different approach to skateboarding, like just using my music to kind of fuel the stuff that I was getting in, Stacy was the guy that opened that door as far as, you know, letting me have, you know, some, some swag, you know, flow, you know, coming from the PAL in Dynasty and at that time, that stuff all felt magic. Like I just posted a picture on Instagram today, me skating the Steve size board. You know, I just remember loving it, you know what I mean? So much. And it's just like, it's, they don't even make skateboards. It's hard to just du yeah. duplicate what was made back then. For some reason, it was just like, just to that time, you know what I mean? And, you know, even your skate stance was different back then. So. Oh yeah. It was I trying to ride some of the older boards. Now I, I don't even know how we did it. Yeah. Yes. With, without rolling her ankle you know like rolling yep. over your ankle <laughs> yeah it's just it's kind of, it's crazy but yeah um so i have let's see you you were definitely if not the first but one of the first black skaters to get the cover of a magazine does that yeah. sound correct yeah How, yeah I'm, I'm the first yeah uh, they say african-american or first yeah ethnic African, yes yeah. yeah so what I mean, what was that like? I mean, I know like Ray Barbie has mentioned that that was a huge inspiration for him. So yeah. did that hit you as, as a big thing at that time? Or is it just in hindsight? I mean, you were on the cover of Thrasher and yeah, 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 that yeah. alone for anyone is huge. Yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. Cause uh, it's like, once again, it was like, we're in the middle of like kind of skateboarding, not being fully accepted by the masses. It's just, it's, it's more of a kind of a, athletic lifestyle cult you know what I mean? because it's very you have to have your energy up to be skating these backyard ramps in these weird spots it's there's nothing the same like parks today are more samey versus like every spot was different so once we knew that we had tom's ramp we were just once again just building up our chops and doing things that were, were cool we just knew that photography was important and we always looked up to glenn freeman mm. so we always said to glenn even because we would see him at shows in new york we say, hey, come through to the ramp and you know check it out. And Glenn was busy, but the one time that he went through to do a sequence with Tom and I doing doubles, he created. I mean, Glenn, it's like he he more or less you know curated that whole vibe. It was like he saw me do that trick, and he was like, yo, I need to shoot this about about thirty times. I was like, all right, let's go, you know. And that's that's how. And I didn't even ask what it was gonna be, where or how it was coming about. I just called Fausto, like, hey. I know Tom and I got this doubles thing where he's doing this invert over my head and I'm just, you know, I got my head back and, you know, he's like, what's going on? And he's like, uh, you got the front cover. And I'm like, and it's Fausto from Independent, which, you know, is another icon. Right. And, you know, I'm just, I'm floored. It just, I, I didn't really feel like a, like a skate rock star thing. You know, I was just starting this, you know, um, skateboarding program in a private school in Philadelphia called the Philadelphia School because two, two kids that I skated with that were like about 15, 16, when I was like 18, they both, you know, attended this school and, and one had their parents there. So we convinced the school to make a quarter pipe and we had like a little, you know, way back then. So like I was kind of fueling all this energy and it just kind of, it, I guess I was always told that I needed some kind of like bio 
of work if I'm going to be, they weren't really saying self-employed, but if I, I just didn't have a good time having regular jobs, you know what I mean? So right. I, I wanted to make my talents within playing music early and playing in cover bands at 14, you know, to, you know, being able to play chops and, and, and do things to make work as an 18 year old person out in Philadelphia, but I wanted my skateboarding within it. So it just, it made me know that from 82, when I graduated to 84, I was able to work myself into a frenzy to make a connection with Glenn Friedman at a show at CBGB's. He said, you know, yo, I'm going to make sure to come through, but I want it to be the right environment. And then, you know, KT from Thrasher, you know, sets it up and then Glenn starts to curate something that we didn't even know anything about, you know, because, and that's what, it's, it's to me, it felt like an honor of like, wow, we worked at something. Glenn saw something and he was like, I don't know what's, what's going to happen with this, but I know that I have a good shot. And that's, that's at that point, it's, it's art, you know what I mean? Cause it's, it's not about me going, yo, that's the shit. And I'm the, I'm the first black guy. Cause I didn't even know that I was the first black guy until like, you know, there was a thing called how we roll. It was just a whole thing about ethnic skaters that was a, yeah. in a museum somewhere in LA. And that's where they told me, hey, you're the first guy, you know, you know, on the front cover that's, you know, black, you know, and then I get the Nike thing. And I mean, that's when I felt more honored when I was able to reflect on the front cover through the Nike sneaker, through the Nike dunk. That to me felt like I could stand on top of that and know that like just me and my friend skating in his backyard, we both made ourselves on this kind of like legacy level of n- never giving in on skateboarding, like always figuring out we have to it's like transition. You got to transition from one moment, you know, to the next, you know, I'm glad that skateboarding gave me enough of a belief when people thought that we were clowns, you know what I mean? Yeah. Holding onto these skateboards and, you know, looking weird and wearing our knee pads and shopping malls being kooks, you know, just just (laughs) stupid shit. Yeah. Yeah. We looked at some point we kind of did look ridiculous. We looked like kooks. I would never, I told my son, I would never do this shit today that I did back. I just, Uh, we were just being so anti crowd because people would just really, they would just rank on us. Like, what are you guys doing? But everyone else looked pretty ridiculous back then too. So it's not true. You know, true. Not too crazy. But (laughs) (laughs) so uh, you mentioned Tom Grahalski and and, I mean, that ramp was pretty legendary. Mm. Uh, do you have any stories about it? I mean, there must have been some crazy, some crazy shit that happened. Well, no, we, I mean, other than like, you know, windows getting smashed out because it was in a backyard that was, I don't, I mean, it was about the size soup, of the soup. ramp, right? Yeah. Yeah. The size of the ramp fit back there. And there was enough room for people to walk in Tom's parents to get in and out. But if boards went off the side of the ramps, you know, Jim Murphy cracked Tom's dad's you know, front window to his plumbing truck a utility truck and that that kind of pissed tom's dad off that you know that was the only thing that was weird but i mean i think the wildest thing about it was the the cast and the crew like mike Vallely comes out of there you know like chris pastor skated there you know a bit but myself you know jim murphy jeff hartzell skated there um blaze bowen skated there just oh it's a huge amount and whatever pros that would come through at that time but it's to me it was Tom's father had a small blue, blue or, you know, flat fiberglass ramp that was about like four and a half feet high. And after Cherry Hill closed, that's what we would do. I would, t- you know, I'd take the train and go skate Tom's mini blue ramp. And then Tom's dad was a type of dude that like, I'm just going to scour everything because skate parks were closing. And he was like, I'm going to see this park in Stanton, Staten Island, see what, what they have there. And they still had, I think, the turning point, like plexi kind of like capsule. And they had that plexi ramp and he said, I'm bringing the ramp home. Cause we used to take as many blue ramp out to do 4-H skate demos. We had it down to a science where me and about four of the guys could take that, those, those big fiberglass chunks and put them in together and set it up with the decks and everything and just do a full blown demo. You know, cause that's what we do for 4-H. We did that for about like two, two, three years. We did that for, we did huh. a lot of skate demos in, in New Jersey at fairs and, super fun ran up to skate you know what i mean and super fun to do a demo it was just it was cool that we were actually learning the guts of what you know skate park builders do you know you know now for the skateboarding back then because we had tom's dad was just always thinking he's a plumber so he's always thinking bits and parts so he figured like if i can get a ramp that we can take apart and you know reassemble and you know the whole thing we can go do demos but it could stay in the backyard 
And then it went from the small ramp to saying, well, let me just get a bigger ramp, but let me make sure that it's durable so we only have to replace the plexiglass. There's no wood. It's just metal frame and plexiglass, 12 foot wide, about 11 foot high. So wow. <laughs> It was heavy. <laughs> yeah, that must have been must have been uh, interesting to put together. And I'm, I'm so sorry if I'm speaking too crazy. I'm just excited talking yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, I know that. That's it's it's awesome hearing about that stuff. Like, because I mean, like you said, they have it down to a science now, but you guys were kind of inventing it yeah. <laughs> at that point. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, I'm just happy that everyone's. It just, it just seemed like for some reason there was just the need for all this creativity around skate park, you know, you know, design and building, you know, and it's just cool that people can actually lobby for these things to happen where we just didn't have that education back in the day. I mean, it was around for people to grasp, but it's just crazy that uh, um, it's almost better that we had to kind of have the, the minimal bits to, to, for it all to be blown out of the water again. But I, but I wish that some of those older ramps or if skate parks could start doing some of these old vintage ramps over again, you know what I mean? For, for the future kids, you know, because some of that stuff was super fun to skate. You know I mean? Yeah. 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 And and some of it, you know, maybe not so perfect either. Like sometimes uh. some of the parks that are around now, it's almost like yeah. you have the, it's almost like you have the paradox of choice. It's like there's too much there. Yeah. It's too perfect. Right, right, right. <laughs> Whereas, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I, you know, I just want to go find some, a sketchy uh, wheelchair ramp or something. Or, yeah. Right. Or right. Kinks think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Curb cut or something. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, but let's get, let's talk about the music side of things a little bit, like, cause that's obviously another huge area, uh, in your life. What, what, how did you get into playing music? Um, music was introduced to me by, uh, my dad, also my mom too, but my, my dad played tenor sax and he had a top 40 band and they would, um, rehearse in, in the house where we lived in, in Wilmington. And so I was always, you know, probably from age, you know, one on just listening to the music. My first time jamming and playing on drums was like age six. And then my first time playing a show with my father's band was age eight. And then I just stayed active in school, like jazz band and, and jamming with friends and stuff like that until I wanted, until punk rock came over and gave me more of an identity about music. And were, were drums so was, were drums the, the the first thing you learned to play yeah drums were my first instrument and then by age say 11 or 12 i started picking up bass and my brother played guitar you know probably he started playing guitar at age six so when you know your brothers you goof around and switch instruments so he would learn how to play drums and and i would versus kind of goof around on guitar and then when we got a bass we feel you know messing around with that my dad played all the instruments also he could play anything practically wow got his hands on you know I mean? that's super impressive i can't play anything <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a um, process and how did so obviously i'm i'm guessing you were in lots of different bands bef before mcrad but how did that come about because that's that kind of transition into the mixing the two different worlds yeah yeah well, yeah, well band wise the only two serious bands like uh the first one was a band called Jerry's Kids. It was an early, it's not the one from Boston. Oh, okay. Was, I was, say. No, 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 no. <laughs> that, that was when I was in 11th grade. So that was probably like, well, I graduated 82. So that's probably like 81, end of 80. And we would, you know, just do Sex Pistols covers. And we played a couple of different bars out in like Newark, Delaware. And then once I moved to Philly, um, there was a kid that I skated with at Cherry Hill Skate Park. His name is Zeke Zagar. And when I moved to Philly, I became friends with Zeke again. Because when I was at Cherry Hill, I was about 15 and Zeke was at that time was around 10. So when I got up to, you know, graduated from high school, age 18, Zeke was like 15. And he played in a band called FOD. He's a kind of legendary Philadelphia punk band. Okay. And just because of the skate connection and the music, Zeke was like, yo, we should start a band. You know what I mean? So basically, you know, McGrath was the third band that I was in, that I was in, but my connection, it was it was all through skateboarding, you know what I mean. So it was only a minimal kind of like turnover of bands. You know, this other band, New Jersey's Finest. There was a brief hardcore band with some friends of mine up there, but as far as identity bands, where I knew that like I was talking to someone that through through an art form of like skateboarding and say, "Yo, we should get something together," but 
add reggae and, and have it be all over the place. And, you know, cause you know, skaters at that point were all over the place. You know, yeah. we loved Dwayne Peters and he was all, you know, just reckless. So we try to take our, our best versions of that. From, that's what I remember from why, why we even started and made McRat a group and why I ended up holding onto it and revamping it into like weakness, you know, from the, the original record. Right. Right. And so how did, how did it come about that you got, I mean, obviously, you know, your your music is is pretty iconic at this point in the skate world. Um, I mean, how did that come about? And 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 I, I don't know. Like, how did did you have any idea that it was going to have? I mean, because you know the the guys that that were skating to your music at that time weren't super well known, but it was still Powell Peralta. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. So so did did it. Did it hit you that it was going to be a big thing, or, or, or you know? Can yeah, you... it's 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 like um, kind of the first aspect of how it was going to be big to us because skateboarding was such a tight knit of guys, especially once we realized that we were in bands and other guys like you know skaters keep in touch with each other through mail, through fanzines. You know, things start happening, and there's so many different levels of punk rock that were jumping off around myself. You know, just getting the first Shepherd, you know, Ferry, you know, getting his first fanzine. I mean, we just got so much different stuff going on. But the band identity, I don't know, it just kind of, um, let me get back to your, what was your question again as far as well, like how, oh, how did, well, how for weakness? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, so, yeah. Partly like how did it, how did you get? Yeah. So, so yeah, my, there. yeah, how, how I was, um, making my, the point before relate to what you were saying is, the punk rock ethos was there. So Stacy was able to stay in touch because all of the skaters, you know, for me writing him from age 14, at this time I'm like age eight, eight, 19, 20, 21, the first version of McRad broken up. So I'm starting to write stuff that's more in a desire of saving the whole skate culture because we're just a small crew of people. We're just meeting each other randomly through shows or someone saying, yo, I just went to some trip and met these guys and here's a number. And so to me, it was like our dedication through skateboarding plus having Stacy Peralta being there through all of skateboarding, making its ups and downs. He was the one to be able to handpick things and make it big to us first before it was big to anyone else. And I think that skateboarding is the only like kind of culture, lifestyle culture that has its own appreciation before we let anyone else jump in you know it's like we we said that from straight from jump and having stacy take the music and push it to another level when i saw that in the premiere in la i was like whoa he just he really stacy just changed skateboarding you know what i mean i've mm -hmm. I, I wrote the song in philadelphia just moving back from san francisco in 1985 so i had it and i was in another friend's band for a little bit called the m80s and i told him and I told, you know, a bunch of things, yo, I have this song, but something's telling me to hold on to it. And that song was weakness. You know, it was just me kind of, you know, the first version of McRab was over. So I was kind of in a, a, a painful mindset of like, wow, man, my homies, have, we can't, we can't have that same bond. So I have to kind of become the singer when I wasn't and then be able to relate my guitar playing to my vocals, which I really wasn't a vocalist. So I did it the skateboard punk rock way. Well, let, let's just do it how we do it but let me take the fine things about rock and roll and throw it right into skateboarding. And that's how weakness, it's just wow, weird. Wow. Yeah, just sitting with the Ibanez guitar in West Philadelphia, just strumming some chords. And I came up with the melody and a friend of mine, John Wagner, helped me write the lyrics and then we collabed on the lyrics. And, and that song has just been able just to stick with it, but it was all done organically. I didn't say, I'm gonna write this song. It was just a riff, you know, just, just appeared. A lot of Def Leppard, you know what I mean? A lot yeah. of lot, lot of lot of heavy Mutt Lang influence. He's a producer that's done a lot of great rock records, you know what I mean? And and guitar outside of Jimi Hendrix when the MTV days, there was a lot of drifty, you know, kind of noodly riffs jumping off. And so I, I I'm glad that I found mine for skateboarding more more than anything. Right, right. And so you said, so you said you you played guitar and you sang and did you do Every, did you play everything on that recording? No, no. Um, that's when I got a different band together. John Wagner was on drums. A friend of mine, Rob DeJoseph, 
from a band called Little Gentleman. He was on bass. Uh, we had the original singer from McGrad, Ethan Jarvis. He was on vocals, but he didn't sing that song. And then it was me. So we had played that sh a bunch of shows playing that song and I got it together, you know, pretty tight. So when we went to record it with Ray Stevens, you know, he plays from the faction and Clay Wheels and a bunch of different Bay Area bands, yeah. San Jose bands. We, we just went in the studio and recorded it, you know, live. You know, that's how most of our records were done. They would only give us like five, 10 hours. You right. know, we'd have, to, we'd have to know what it is. I mean, I think T, yeah, TG on the record um, is the only song that I played all the instruments on. I just wanted to do something for Tom Verholsky and Tommy Guerrero and, and write a song, you know, just keeping that skate anthem alive for that time. Right, right, right. And then, so you, I, I can't even, you know, I can't, I, I was, I was looking over some of your info online today just to make sure I had a, had my head wrapped around it, but you've been in, you've done so much musically. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. You know, I don't want to go down a list, but like, I know you also played in, in underdog and bad brains. Yep. <laughs> you have any stories you want to tell about that? Um, playing an underdog. Um, I met Dave Grohl through, through underdog because Dave Grohl used to play drums for scream. Yep. And we played at nine 30 club and DC and we opened up for scream. And probably the wildest thing about that was, you know, I was in there watching, you know, you know Scream play with Dave Grohl and I was kind of tripping on him. And I was like, oh, you know, cause we'd already played our set underdog that day. We, you know, we had, it, was, it was a fun show. It was the start of our West Coast tour. And all of a sudden I turn around and, you know, Russ Igley is the bass player of underdog. He's in the pit and he's starting to get a little rowdy. You know, he's just being himself. And so I was like, oh, I'm just going to go out in the van and, you know, just not be a part of the in indoor scene. And then all of a sudden we had to leave the club because, you know, we got kicked out of the club because Russ ended up hemming up, some, you know, some dude in the pit. You know what I mean? Just yeah. that's the type of stuff. To, and it's nothing against Russ just or anyone else. I mean, that was just a part of the scene. If you were in there, you know, throwing your body around and someone's in the wrong mood and gets, right. you know, takes it, you know, some people are going to get up in arms. But most of any of those stories with Bad Brains and Underdog, it was just now that I look back at, on it from like being where I'm at, like in my, in my 50s when I was just a kid back then, I was learning so much about music that I, and this is nothing against universities, but I could never learn from a scholar what I could learn from life. You know what I mean? It's right, just like, yeah. and because we were all growing at the same time and like, I have so much respect for, you know, Russ and Dean and Richie from Underdog because, you know, Richie's done, you know, Into Another, he's done yeah. all these different, um, you know, amazing projects. He's just, a, he's a guru of like, to me, underground, like youth rock and roll. I mean, you call it punk rock or hardcore, but it's just the Underdog to me was like the guitar movement of the hardcore scene of New York and New Jersey. And I was glad to be a part of that. And Bad Brains is more of like getting a full education of where Doc and Daryl was because they grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood and I did, and I moved out to the Burbs, but we kept the music the same and we had a lot of things in common. They just showed me how to take basic influence from records. And instead of running five miles, you can run, you know, Per hour with the idea you could actually run 50 to 60 miles per hour with the idea it's, it's not just about speed it's about energy and color and if you hear something and play it back or if you want to make your own identity through your music don't just be timid about it just it's like theater you, you come come as much about the part and then not rehearse but you know just you know make make your genius within how many times you do something within music i mean the bad brains do that better than anyone you listen to those early first three or four records. I mean, that's some serious, serious, like mental thinking about myself. It's like, well, we're going to write a song, but we're going to make sure that we're at our peak performance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Executing every part. And when you see the, the early footage of them live, it's like, that's all that's going on. And then on top of that, to me, what I learned from Bad Brains on stage, it's like, it's one thing to have a studio recording, but then live, every stage is different. Every night is different. Every click off is different because there's no drum machines. There's just four humans on stage and everyone's, you know, connected. You know what I mean? It's, it's a really, really cool concept that they created on their own, just being four black kids from DC to influence so much punk rock and kind of be still held as like the ultimate punk rock hardcore band. You know what I mean? It's just, 
they definitely deserve it for what they've given to music. It's a pretty heavy concept. Once you get past the political aspect of what they were trying to do, the mindset of what you could do is with the simplicity of punk rock. It's beautiful that they, they, they pushed it that open. You know, what I mean? they, they really went after it. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. There's, there's a lot of layers there. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so so I, I wanted to ask, like, I don't know if everyone knows, I, I didn't realize, but you, you played in like some, like obviously lots of punk rock bands, but like also huge acts, you know, like yeah. Urge Overkill. I mean, <laughs> Billy Joel, was yeah. that, 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 I mean, not that, I mean, obviously you're a very skilled musician and you, I'm sure you could play whatever they throw at you, but that must be, I mean, those are two very different acts right there, but yeah. like it contrasts those with bad brains or, <laughs> or, you know, that's a, that's a huge, it's very different. What was that like? And, and like, how, what is that connection? Is it just meeting people through, through meeting people and playing and. Well, yeah, it was, um, once I got, like it was probably 90, well, basically 89 when I did, uh, my solo record for Dream, and that's when I started to kind of find out about that, about producing and, and and what I could do in the studio, and and then I would meet people that would do you know session work, and I would you know, ask them, hey, what you know what it's all about? I'm like, no, you come to the studio, and if they got a song for you to play on, or an artist is trying to create a song, and they need a drummer, bass player, guitar player, they call people, and you know sometimes they share a songwriting, sometimes they don't, but you're a lot of if they say work for hire, that means you work for hire under their you know, their rules and regulations. It's not just playing with people. I mean, the studio game is, it's like playing chess, you know, with, with your ego, knowing how to keep yourself in and out of the game. And once I realized it was, I could handle that dynamic, not just because it's a, because it's not a music scene. It's kind of a music, it's like a music gym. You know what I mean? You have to right. work with the, the person who owns the studio, you know, the person who's conducting all the business right. because you want to be a part of their dynamic. So the Billy Joel, you know, option, of me playing on River of Dreams was basically, I was doing session work for a company studio called Studio Four in Philadelphia. Just Joe and Phil Niccolo, they're called the Butcher Brothers. They helped the Fugees get discovered and they signed a band called The Goats. And you know, they ran a small record label, but they were doing huge remixes for Columbia Records, Sony Records in New York. And um, when this came through, Billy Joel was actually in an embezzlement case or something like that is you know brother-in-law okay. or somebody is you know ripped off a bunch of money and bounced so since he had money from sony he was able to basically post up in the studio in new york and post up in the studio in la and start feverishly recording songs because the only way i could really relate to that is just that this guy just probably just wakes up and just starts shitting songs you know what i mean he's just like <laughs> yeah. one of those guys you know just a, he's always at the piano making simple chords and simple melodies into great, you know, anthems. So there's a song, River of Dreams, and they were like, hey, we want you to do a remix to it, you know, to Joe and Phil Niccolo. And so we basically start stripping the song kind of apart and reassembling different things as far as what Joe and those guys are doing. And they call me in on the last, you know, kind of like day of production i was hearing it because i was working on other sessions in this you know they had other rooms in the studio where i was doing different things and they called me and they said hey do you have a five string bass and i was like well no i can go buy one you know at my friend's music store and come down to the studio i was like well yeah you should get down here because it's an important song for billy joel and we get a chance to do the remix and it looks like it's going to be a single for his you know the remix to the single of the record that he's about to drop and when I get to the studio, they explain to me the business behind why he's doing, the reason why the business is all like pressure, 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 get this done, you know, Sony, whatever the label at the time is gonna crank it out. And so I go in with the bass. It's my first time really playing, you know, this Epiphone five string bass. It was just, I was just getting used to it, just right. you know, goofing around. And they said, hey, play this bass line. You know, we want you to simplify the soul line but we want you to make it feel kind of island reggae-ish because they knew that I love reggae. And I played 25 minutes later, I walk out and a week later I'm on an airplane and I hear it. And I was just like, it's, <laughs> it's amazing how Billy Joel had the, you know what I mean? He was just a fever. He had the fever for repairing his life due to a financial hit. And he turned that, 
situation into a you know great great time for and a great time for me too because it was just it's not a song that I mean people a lot of people know it but I felt embarrassed about it because it was a song that most of my punk rock friends didn't relate to because it was such a clean recording and such a clean message and so close to gospel and if you didn't really love gospel which a lot of my punk rock friends weren't you know hip on that yet you know what I mean right it was it was it, it took so long for me to be able to say yeah well that's pretty crazy because before it was, you know it's just work and, and an opportunity going amazing in a record industry that's highly competitive you know when you you're on something that that breaks through you know what i mean i was careful not to use his success to make my studio work or studio session work or learning how to produce more than it needed to be like i knew that i had to put in years after that just to even stay up to the competitive competitive level of what's in the music industry when you when you enter into a recording studio you know what i mean it wasn't like i knew it wasn't going to let up for years until they introduced pro tools that's when i knew that everything was going to change i knew that everything's going to become more home-based than like okay. drive to the studio and like let's you know right right so what is that what is that like of being a studio musician then Super. what was it like then versus now then um, it was, there was a more of a, a jingles thing where, you know, the, the guys were doing a lot of commercials, like the big guys were always getting on them and, you know, LA and New York and some in Philly and some of that stuff would trickle down to my area, but it was, we had more work. There was more people out, but things were a little bit more primitive. So when I started, it was still analog recording and, 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 you know, tape machines and, you know, it was getting over to ADAS and a couple of different futuristic things, you know, one or two digital machines, but more it was still like hands-on. You needed more than one person in the studio to run it because of gear going up or down or right. whatever, you know. And that's back then, and it was great, and it was a lot of money into it, but even the mindset was different than how it is now because once Pro Tools was invented, it, it made studio work at your house become more important so you could get your pre-production together. So if you were writing you were presenting to a studio now you have your own audience and your own thing at home you don't have to be under pressure going through the stuff that i've gone through you can actually work at all the stuff that i was doing you know at a young age you can you can and without getting all the mental pressure you can do that at home now we didn't really have that option you know with, with having a computer in front of us and just say yeah i'm just gonna just record something and see how i sound instead of just waiting to get to a studio session and people are like, ah, oh, we need to use somebody else, you know, because that's that's the hard thing about studio sessions. They're allowed to call somebody else. Even if, you know, you record something, they're still allowed to, to have somebody come in and do another bass track or another, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? It's, you gotta have a thick skin. Right, right, right. Regardless and of what it is, you know. So you've pretty much been able to, to make music your, your livelihood for, for the most part? Yeah, I've, I've done a pretty good job, like making sure that I could stay self-employed and having a couple of different corporate gigs, you know, through skateboarding and, and, and through different things or, you know, corporate events where, where we're out playing or out just doing, you know, songs for some film work here and there. It's just, it's the, it's the juggle. And I guess why I haven't turned into either me being in, involved with a corporation yet or or having a corporate job outside of my music is because I haven't really found, I guess, a strike of energy in myself that will want to do that outside of music. I'm still so intrigued with songwriting. So my quest now is making kind of the love for the, the music that I have into a better business approach. You know what I mean? But I'm, mm -hmm. I'm happy that I'm doing it in my fifties because I think that I'm able to accept defeat and failure, but then able to accept a come up, even if it's a small come up where I can just learn how to nudge those positive vibes forward instead of expecting stardom or fame or, I mean, all of that's good, but there's, there's still a part of music that's really super, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a human vitamin, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, when you get into it, it's like, whether you're listening to it or, or playing it or creating, even recording it, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, it heals the heart for sure. Right, right. It energizes you. It's, it's, you know, much more than a, a job and a, and a paycheck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you see any similarities between, you know, your, your sk skating, um, you know, ba back in the day, like, you know, or, or just being like a professional skater, however you want to frame that and a musician, like, 
do you see similarities between those two different worlds? Like how, like, like your, the way your, what your mindset has to be or, or anything like that? Between skating and music? Yeah. Um, I think for, for us and other friends of mine that were musicians, it was like, luckily we had like a big hut of like what skateboarding and early punk rock was about because for some reason, you know, Ian McKay and, you know, suicidal tendencies we had these people popping out that were you know like the suicidal tendencies brother is the guy that's jim muir he's a part of the z you know this yeah we had all these wherever the 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 roots would spread out there was always a kind of like a fun connection so for us it was easier to take the take the beach boy approach and say well we need our own soundtrack and we need our own vibe and then for me learning that i was able to take that and say well what is my canvas, which is my creative music within skateboarding. When I get into a, a corporate, more of a corporate session, let me take that person and just kind of put that emotional cape on that person and say, you keep that for yourself. And when you're around these business people, you figure out what they're trying to do and what they want to do. And that's all with skating and music. You know what I mean? So you're not wearing, I didn't want to wear out what was close to my heart. So I think that that's, music and skateboarding have that common bond of like, if you can learn how to have something that you could throw up on the canvas and never worry about anybody kind of judging it, unless you have a solid core family, like how skateboarders and punk rock do, or you know, artists or, you know, comedians, they all have this inner world that they can throw against themselves first to get, you know, the gratitude or the not form of gratitude to, you know, to better yourselves. And that's what, I think that's why skateboarding and music makes so much sense because you can reevaluate yourself on different levels within both lifestyles. You know what I mean? It's like, it's one can inspire the other, but the fact that you can make, you can make mental choices to be two different characters within music right. and skating and they both work with inside each other. Right. Right. And it's kind of like being an artist, uh, like a painter by, by, you know, at night. And then you have a, your graphic design job where you may have to just design totally. some, some corny logo that you're not really that into totally. yeah. not that it's corn all corn you know what i mean right. but but you're there's a client and you're the you need to make them happy not not so much it's not so much about making you happy but you still have that side of it right that fills you up and keeps you mm -hmm. going yes because you know, it, it's yours that, yes you know? yeah, yeah. It's very, very special time yeah 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 so yeah. also you have a you have a band with your with your son, so kind of like how you started playing with your dad. You have a band with your son as well. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, Kieran, Kieran Tracy plays drums, and we've been jamming since he's been like age three, and he went to school of rock and kind of jammed and did all that. And so, once around seventeen, we decided we're gonna you know all live together because he was living with his mom at the time, you know, I would just go pick him up when, you know, he had free time. When we decided to just live together, I wanted to get kind of, because he was going to get homeschooled, I wanted to make music and skateboarding as important as the schooling so we can keep the energy up on both levels because I had never done this homeschooling thing. You know, it was just, this charter school was, you know, really cool and the program they had was great, you know, sent out the computer. So we were able to kind of like, stay home and be able to put music in and out of the schoolwork. And from that is when we started writing songs and came up with the, the band name, you know, Bing Crosby and just kind of left the music as free as that too. We don't really write the songs before we play. We just kind of, I let him start playing and I just start playing to him, whatever comes to mind. And then I'll retrack bass once I listen and learn what I did before as kind of a freestyle bit. You know, but that comes from us just jamming as, you know, him being a, you know, a little kid and just letting him be free without any pressure and seeing what he plays and then me just, you know, vibing to him. It's just kind of like a give and take, you know, yeah, situation. And it turns out to be fun, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, we have a new record coming out on a label called Comfort Monk. And okay. the title of the record's called Sandcastles, but it's all kind of spacey instrumental stuff. It's, I'm influenced by a band called Can. Okay very spacey instrumental sun Ra, you know it's just it's not really heavy jazz what we're doing we're just doing rocky stuff but it's you know it's kind of spaced out fun you know right right, right. we played we played at fdr a bunch so we've had a chance to take it to different levels you know for the past three years so i i like the growth of it and, and the sound of it also that's awesome so Thank you. let me ask do you have 
any advice to, you know, anyone that's looking to make it either as a skater, a musician or an artist, like any in, in the creative field, you know, just kind of ma- forging their own way, like any advice to someone um, trying to do that type of thing? Um, I, I, what I would, I think for any basic advice with the way things are now with um, like the restrictions, whether it's COVID or whether it's the political restrictions or what's going on, it seems like everything like travel and everything's really itemized. So if I was thinking what would better a younger musician or a younger person in skateboarding was well, like, well, hopefully the beginning stages of skateboarding and music, you can support whatever local companies you have within your neighborhood. And then, cause normally if there's anybody representing an underground lifestyle or, or growing lifestyle, there's a certain amount of dedication that goes into a skate shop or a mom and pop music shop. And those people know kind of the, the in and out guts of it. And some of those shops may not blow up as big or be as uh, big of a financial influence in, in the overall scheme of how skateboarding and music is built up financially, but it's the building blocks that that if people just think that I got to think outside of my neighborhood to, to, to get into the lifestyle of music or skating, I think that you're, not that you're not wasting your time, but I wish that there was able more board manufacturers out so people can go like, oh, I want to know what it's like to feel like having a board with my name on it. Like, what do I want that pressure or not? Let me just see what it's like. Instead of just letting another company take so much soul out of people's, sale out of people's wins. Let me just say that, you know what I mean? Just you know, went out of the sales, you know what I mean? It just, it just seems like if people will have more local information to learn the nuts and the bolts and, and, and the guts of what it's like to be on a professional diet of, of, of staying in a, you know, an ever-changing market, I, I think that would be amazing because then the internet would just, to me, have a ton of information. So if someone wanted to move to a certain area and they knew that their kid was really talented, not only they're going to have either more skate parks or more stu- recording studios or more professional people around, they're going to know what it's like, well, what if I want to, you know, brand something or what if I want to get with any type of a company to do something like, you know, how do I even set myself up to even do that? Or if I do have money to invest, who do I invest with? So it's not a waste of time. So people aren't getting raked over the calls, you know, because I've seen the internet and different situations and different people not overpay for things, but it's like, we're, we're expanding we're experimenting now with a market that's going to keep growing. I don't, I don't know if it's ever going to really end, you know what I mean? Cause it's, there's so much value in what we've put into the history of vintage buyers and vintage music and vintage skateboarding to things that's going on now. I'd rather people say that we should be documenting more of our growth things. And, and the more that we can stay mom and pops with our local stuff and then build that into the other bigger companies that to me is going to make a, better you know because if, if travel's yeah. limited and things are limited we have to start looking on the inside more to get all these people that want to get their kids to the next level that competitions may be cut down so how do you how do we fill in the gaps of keeping the stoke of people having you know things around i mean there's there's smaller skate companies around but i think that if people knew how to make themselves a little bit more viable of getting petty cash into smaller situations that can make things go further you know what i mean like right a little bit of money fanzine t-shirt a little bit of that stickers you know that like certain we just sometimes we dump so much into one direction without looking at all this the common ground around it you know what i mean it's just that's what i would wish for younger people to learn just to finding out what's around yeah i mean well it sounds like you know just you want to build a foundation of you know the right foundation and build out from there and not get so uh, caught up in trying to trying to get that huge sponsor, but um, you know, or or whatever it might be, but but you know, really lay that groundwork down in your in your neighborhood first, you know, yeah. or and, and get and get a get a feel for it, so that when you do get to that big level, if you do get to the back the big level, you know how to handle it. Yeah, because uh, it's almost like when. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, someone like the NBA might, an NBA team might sign someone straight out of like high school and they've never gone through the ranks and uh, they don't quite know how to handle it, even though they yeah. have the talent. Yeah. 
There's been some fun things on Instagram, watching some interviews of young basketball players and football players talk about how they've wasted all that money. You know, and it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. You know, it's, yeah. And also it gives back to the, the community, you know, that, you know, was supporting you at the beginning too. So there's, yeah. there's two, this is two, the uh, double aspect, uh, yeah. different aspect to it too. And not to um, say that it's not happening. I just, I just think that if young people knew that they can collab with each other first before they start letting the influx of, cause we had people in skateboarding and music within punk rock, we were all in a certain kind of like huddle. I mean, there would be right. other people around that were elders, but we kept our fanzine world and our shit like pumping. So if something were to drop, we were we were able to use the U US mail in such a lightning speed fashion, yeah. you know what I mean? And once FedEx and all that stuff and different things started, you know, United Parcel getting involved and, you know, it was just, people were just doing things through the mail, collabing on fanzines and just doing things and just trusting that when I get mailed something before even having a preview of it, you know, like, I, I'm going to put that much thought process into it. So when it gets to someone else, they're going to want to work on it. You know what I mean? That's right. Well, it was all about, yeah. it was, it was all about building up that local, that local buzz and vibe. And like, it was, it was, it's before, you know, pre-internet bands would have to typically play, you know, local all the time and yeah. build that fan base. And then they, before they would, you know, venture out. And now it seems like, uh, you know, maybe, people are a little bit too excited to just get in the van and go cross country without really playing anything in their own yeah. town. The film documentaries yeah. make everybody think, well, let me get on the road and see if I can drive myself crazy with these people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so. uh, yeah, I do miss the local. I mean, I'm not, it's still there, but I mean, when I think about Philadelphia and how all those punk rock shows and hardcore shows and how skateboarding was allowed to be involved with, you know, punk rock and hardcore, just amazing time. Right. And I think, you know, what was funny too, I was talking about with someone else about this recently. Um, things have become, become a little bit homogenized too. So like you used to be able to, like, you could hear a band and kind of tell what scene they came from or, yeah. or even the way people skated. I didn't yeah. know there was, there was, uh, you know, just in different towns in my area, you could kind of see people would have different styles and sometimes you could kind you would know where they came totally. from yep. just by how they were skating yep. or what they called certain tricks, you know, they yeah. had different names for different tricks and things. Mm -hmm. um, it's way more tribal. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't, you know, I want to respect your time. I don't want to keep you too long, so I'm, I'll let you go in a minute, but is there anything you want to, you want to talk about or bring up or. Um, I don't know. I think I'm 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 pretty good. I'm 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 pretty dazed about all the stuff we've been kind of going through with the, the political, yeah, <laughs> kind of like circus that's around. And you know, I just um, if if anything, I just just before I got kind of spaced out on some greens, I was just starting to think just some dumb thoughts, and I was like, wow, wouldn't it be crazy if someone was just like wanted to write in a movie on a time and just wanted to have everybody involved. Cause like, we're so involved with what's going on in the world right now that it's just like, I mean, the, the, the amount of dynamic that's gonna be fueled 20 years from now, like people reviewing back on this time. And it's like, oh. the heaviness of it is just like, that's what, I mean, I'm over the anxiety of it, but I was just like, wow, man, maybe this is what that world needs to do to preserve itself, you know, because like skateboarding, I don't think skateboarding would ever get that out of control you know, like how the politics did where we would have, you know, we have uproars like, you know, Rocco and Stacy and, and different mm -hmm. people. But, you know, to me, that was like the heaviest. It's, it's more like individual people making bad choices within skateboarding that do it. We, we, I, I hope that we never have any huge wars with anybody ever. I hope that people realize it. Like if we keep skateboarding kind of universally, like, like kind of like the lifestyle that you can choose with, with minimal drama, you know what I mean? Other than, you know, damaging your body because you want to be at a certain level. I, that would be amazing, you know what I mean? For the next 50 to a hundred years, you know what I mean? That's that's the only thing that I would really want to say. That would be my uh, that my wish. Well, that's a, that's a good place to, to leave it. Um, do you want to plug anything on the way out? Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I, I pretty much talked myself into a circle. <laughs> can, can we, uh, you want to mention your, your Instagram or Facebook or anything? Oh like yeah. That? My, my Instagram, 
is uh, Chuck Treese, which is uh, C H U C K T R E E C E. Um, that's my main page. I, I do have a TikTok page. It's the same name. But yeah, Instagram, uh, Comfort Monk is a label that um, a new record's going to be coming out. Uh, there's a couple different things happening. I'm excited to just get down south and meet some new people and you know, work with Volcom East and you know Dan and people at Hotel Palms. You know, just some fun stuff. You know what I mean? Maybe hopefully do some music with Ray and Tommy. You know what I mean? Whenever things get mellow with COVID. Have fun. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And where where can people pick up that that new record when it comes out? Well, I think it's going to be released within the next two months, so I will be able to get you that information. But Com- Comfort Monk is the record label, okay. and we do have one song called Weakness Twenty Twenty that's on a, like a music comp that they have. So if you go to Comfort Monk on IG, um, you can see what's you know they have pretty much everything right up there, a couple pages down. You know, you'll see the information. All right, awesome, Chuck. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, too. Hopefully it was great. All right. Thanks for checking out that interview with Chuck Treese. If you want to continue to support us, what we really need is help in spreading the word. So if you could take a screenshot of the podcast or the docuseries Don't Stand in Line, post it up on your Instagram stories or in your feed and just tag us in it. You know, make sure you tag at Kodak Projects so we see it. And, you know, that would really help a lot. It helps just get the word out there. Also, don't forget, if you're looking for some quality screen printing, please check out Triumph Printing Company. You can find them at Instagram and Facebook at Triumph Printing Co. Or you can contact Matt directly at triumphprintingco at gmail.com. Next week, we've got another 10-yard fight alum, Ben Chusid, also of Bain and Battery. He has an interesting story to tell about a struggle with materialism and finding yoga. Oh,